word. I'm going to say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the KJZZ Studios in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. What do a retiree, a museum archivist, and a technical writer have in common? Well, they all finished the challenge of National Novel Writing Month, NaNoWriMo, and wrote at least a 50,000-word novel during November. We'll talk to a recent Valley transplant about her historical fiction project. It's really a love letter to all the people who make museums work. And then the second part is within the collection, a claim gets made against the museum that there's a Native American object that the community would like back. Plus, a longtime Valley resident takes a crack at a modern sci-fi novel set in present-day Phoenix. I'm attracted to the rational element of science fiction. I don't want to break physics, fantasy, doesn't have to comply with physics. It, it makes up something magical that sort of forces it to happen. But first, Joanne Marie DiBiase is a retiree living in Glendale. She affectionately refers to the novel she finished this year as Silver Chicklet. I caught up with her recently and found out she's been writing since she was a child. I published my first thing when I was seven years old. Um, I started writing oh, wow. about as soon as I could talk. Um, I have written poetry. I ended up a single mom with a bunch of boys to raise. And I actually once on a talk show said much to everyone's shock that I was actually a print whore. (laughs) (laughs) I would write anything anyone would pay me for. And that was really the truth. I was in the military, but I didn't pay enough. And um, writing was something you could do between midnight and four in the morning, you know? And so I have written everything. I have been a critic I've ghostwritten. I mostly have on my blog, I mostly have diary entries, blog entries, and poetry, only because I started having some issues with words in 2011. And by 2017, I had to quit working because of it. And I am such a perfectionist. I convinced myself I couldn't write. So this year was a big leap for me. I'll bet. How many years have you been participating in NaNoWriMo? I did it four years before, and then I quit. And then this will be my first year back and under my real name rather than my pseudonym. What is it that you love about writing fiction or something that's different, for instance, that you love about writing shorter work like poetry? Poetry doesn't expect you to give a linear or well-detailed explanation. Right. It's really like a painting. It's there for other people to experience and get what they want out of it. Whereas what I love about fiction is you really get to create this world. Even if like this one is uh, what I call silver lit. I mean, it's kind of chick lit for my generation, but I have to create the whole world. I have to know where they live. I have to know who their family is. Even if those details don't get into the story, And I like that. I like that ability to take the things that I most want to say and put them in other people's mouths. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, it's kind of like it's it's the ultimate almost childhood experience, right, where we're so good at playing and so good at make believe. And then something happens to us. And I don't know if it's certain schools, but it's like, well, we got to eradicate all of that now. 
Yeah. And, and oftentimes, a lot of people never go back to that wonderful creativity, that you know, that story making, I guess, is what I'll call yeah. it. Yeah. All of the great teachings in our culture have come about through stories and are held through stories. So story making to me is also a way to hold on to who I was and pass it on to the next people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's what we do, right? We've been doing it forever around the campfire, if you will, uh, telling stories to each other and passing down information, passing down knowledge, passing down religious things, quite frankly, but also passing down art. We've all seen, even if we haven't been there in person, we've all seen cave paintings, for instance, from thousands and thousands of years ago. So expression is integral to humanity. And I feel like people learn by reading literature. It's sort of like a study of human choices. I've said that many, many, many times. And I had a good friend once who said, you know, one of the reasons I love to read is I can prevent myself from making a terrible mistake by reading someone else commit that mistake. And that may be kind of a negative way of looking at it, but also you can get inspired by what you read. As far as your project for NaNoWriMo, tell me a little bit about the plot and maybe some of the characters that are central. My novel is called My Clouds in the Head. I pulled that out because I've always been told that my head was in the clouds. And now... I really do have clouds in my head because of medical situation that's not really that important, but it is what's happening to me. I'm so sorry. Um, So what I wanted to do, I want to normalize this. And one of the ways to normalize that we have older people, I set a story. I live in Thunderbird Senior Living. I now require medical visits and somebody else to do my meds and, you know, a little help once in a while when I do a gravity check and gravity still works. So <laughs> I wanted to, and I think that's underrepresented. Absolutely so what I did, it is. You get three perspectives. My main protagonist is Magda. The plot line is Magda is writing a letter to her children and friends about why she has either decided to live through the decline and they're reading this after she's died in memory care or to take her life now. Like me, she's a Shakespeare enthusiast. So the first chapter, she asks the question to be or not to be. And then each chapter after that is, it all takes place in a two-week period (laughs) over our most recent election because that is something a lot of the people here talked about and really affected their emotional well-being. And it's, um, it still is, in fact. Yeah, yeah. So the pandemic's in there, the politics are in there, and their disabilities, if you will call it that, or everything are included in the story. It's not about dementia. It's not about somebody suffering. It's about how people live with it and what quality of life really means. And if course, I'm not going to tell you what she decides at the end because that would ruin the story. No, we want people to eventually pick it up when it's available. What was the final word count that you got to over 50,000? That's the threshold. I got to 50,370. Outstanding. Totally a challenge. This is the first time I was really a planner. Um, I always called myself a planter before because I kind of had a plan and then I just let the book tell itself. Sure. But because of what's going on with me, I need cues. So I very much set up what was going to happen, 
each chapter was going to show of reasons to be or not to be, which situations that had happened here with my friends and stuff I wanted to include in there. Um, but the snippets of conversations and the situations were all ones I had jotted in a little notebook along the way. The other thing that was a change this time is I had to use the dictation program. Okay. So I actually quit in the middle for about a week. <laughs> well, I was like, if I can't do it my way, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a really great tool, though. I had never thought of that. I have heard of other people using verbatim dialogue that they write, but in terms of actually dictating the material into some type of recording device and then typing as you go, that's just a super idea. I had never thought about that before. Uh, Perhaps you give inspiration to others who are listening. Joanne, I really appreciate you coming to Word and talking to us about sort of your life story and how that's worked itself into this piece of art, which you'll still be putting the finishing touches on, I'm imagining, but it's the portrait (laughs) of the artist that you've described to us. uh, And I can't thank you enough for coming to Word. Thank you so much, Joanne. You're welcome. Bye-bye. You can find out more about Joanne Marie DiBiase on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ's Sun Up today. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. We're putting a cap on our NaNoWriMo series of podcasts, and Christina Seymour joined me recently to talk about her project. It's a novel that stems from her time working in museums. I have been working in museums for the past 10 years, so I've kind of been moving around a little bit. I'm around in California. I worked in Utah. Um, But I decided to move to Phoenix because a good portion of my family actually moved out here. So I wanted to be closer to them. Oh, sure. I got a job out here uh, last year. Unfortunately, not in museums at the moment, but where I'm at currently is is great. I'm happy where I'm at, uh, but I've been missing museums a little bit. So that's kind of where I got that idea, the idea to write a story about museums and my experience with them and kind of write uh, maybe a semi- autobiography said my memoir but with some fiction to it um that's kind of how I got started there so I've I've heard about nano I've always thought it was a really great idea um really great concept for people really great program uh, educational program and tools for for schools and everything but I've never had an idea until this year so I was really looking forward to to kind of dive in and just do it Well, that's awesome. And I think a lot of us do miss museums. Of course, uh, many are transitioning or have transitioned uh, many months ago to virtual tours, especially the smaller ones where people can't really socially distance. 
but uh, I myself certainly miss that piece of my life, not physically being in a space. So you mentioned your background and this nano project uh, being something that's kind of autobiographical. I think that's the case for many folks. Did you cross the finish line at 50,000 words in November? I did. I, oh, I just barely got there. <laughs> 50,202 words. Nice. And so how would you describe your writing process? You know, there's lots of lingo connected to nano, of course. Did you plan it all out or did you just kind of fly by the seat of your pants or somewhere in between? I think I tried to label myself as a, what was it, a, a planster, the in-between. Right. But I, it was probably more seat of my pants. I think if I <laughs> I think if I had this idea maybe six months before, I would have been a planner. I would have tried to plan everything out and got myself an outline. But because I, I really only thought to do it a week in advance of November, kind of thought, all right, we'll just do it. So definitely more of a <laughs> see the, the, the panster type. <laughs> Yeah, you know, a lot of people use the month of October. In fact, they call it Plot-tober. If they're, you know, really intent on just spending the time of November actually physically writing. But a lot of people get close to Halloween and they're like, oh, Nano's coming up around the corner. I guess I better get an idea pretty quickly. Exactly. Um, Tell me then a little bit about the plot of this and also the central characters and what they're engaged in. So the story focuses around a museum employee, the registrar of the museum, who is essentially responsible for a lot of things. She wears a lot of hats in a museum, but, you know, she takes care of the collection. She's the records keeper, kind of the risk manager for the collections, loan officer. The story is twofold. One part is to really raise awareness of careers within museums, such as the registrar collections management roles. Because I think when a lot of people think of museums, they just think of curator. Oh, right. Um, but in this case, you know, there's so much that happens behind the scenes and so many people are responsible for so much. Um, it's really a love letter to all the people who make museums work. Uh, and then the second part is within the collection, a claim gets made against the museum that there's a Native American object within the museum, within the collection that the community would like back, would like return to them. And this is a pretty common example of the, something that does happen to a museum. And there was an act passed in 1990 called the, the Native American Graves Protection and Re- Repatriation Act, um, which mandates that all museums that receive federal funds kind of have to inventory all the Native American objects in their collection. They have to publish that inventory. They have to work with the tribes to return those objects if the tribes want those objects back. But unfortunately, it's not always so straightforward. And sometimes, you know, conflict does occur. Uh, museums don't want to give back the objects. And, and for whatever reason, they realize that there's this object that this tribe wants back. And the museum, for their own reasons, decide not to repatriate. Well, this conflicts with the oh, registrar's wow. ethical values and her beliefs. And so she takes it upon herself to return the object to ensure that the object makes it back to the tribe. So kind of really also exploring a lot of that dynamic uh, between the tribes, between museums, between the employees and their ethics as well. Uh, so I really wanted to dive deep into that and explore that. Well, I think you've set up the conflict perfectly. And in fact, without conflict, there's not much of a story oftentimes, yes, right? Exactly. That's central yeah. to storytelling. I don't want you to reveal the object because hopefully this will be in print and other folks can read it. <laughs> but can you give us some indication? Is it pottery? Is it uh, textiles? 
Yeah, well, actually, that's a very good question, because uh, as part of my research that I was hoping to do, that I could have done definitely six months in advance, <laughs> was actually selecting that object and that tribe, because there are so many stories out there. And a really part, part of my research, you know, going back into my story and, and really going back in there and, and adding a lot, I kind of had an object in mind that I was just using as a placeholder, but it's not going to sure. be the object. But there are just so many stories out there, and I really want to do justice to those stories and to those tribes and communities and, and get their input and get their feedback. I do know that this object, uh, in my head, I would believe to be a ceremonial object or a sacred object mm -hmm. that is vital to that tribe's uh, religion, uh, something that is still very alive for them. Sometimes museums say, oh, we don't want to give these back. They claim that that the object is too fragile to travel or only the museum can take care of it properly when it's, you know, that's not always the case. Of uh, so, so the material of the object, you know, it would definitely have to be fragile in nature just to kind of shed light on an example of an argument that the museums use. Long story short, <laughs> object still hasn't quite been selected yet. You're kind of hinting at what a lot of folks do, which is, of course, use the month of December and weeks after the contest, if you want to call it that. Not everybody treats nano like a contest, but using the weeks after that to go back and, and really participate in the editing process. And so yeah. that's where you'll decide exactly what this object will be. Yes. Yes, exactly. Do you have any real world experience with this kind of thing in museums that you've worked at in the past? I mean, you don't have to get specific about the particular museum or the object, but is this something that's actually happened? Not that you would steal it and <laughs> give it away. But <laughs> no, have no, you no. ever had I, that ethical dilemma before? Always the dream to steal away and, and return. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, no, fortunately, I myself had not had that ethical dilemma, but I know of people who work in museums who have had that dilemma. Um, and so being able to reach out to them and hear their stories and how their museums handled repatriation, folks who have been in similar situations. Well, Christina, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us a little bit about your background and a, a fascinating life that you've had in museums and also your story that you wrote during NaNoWriMo. I really appreciate it, Christina. Of course. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You can find out more about Christina Seymour on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. KJZZ Spot 127 Youth Media Center is a qualifying charitable tax organization, which means that your contribution is eligible for a dollar-for-dollar -dollar credit on your Arizona taxes. Visit taxcredit.spot127.org today and support our award-winning students. KJZZ is the one source that connects you to the state and the world. It's your connection to fact-based reporting and analysis of all the pressing issues of the day. Join the more than 24,000 KJZZ members in supporting every story and every conversation. Listen and support at KJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. As we close out our series on NaNoWriMo, I caught up with Kevin Troy Darling, who lives in North Phoenix. Although he's been an avid creative writer for many years, he actually makes his living in a technical field. I'm either in training or information technology or marketing, one of the three. Somehow I end up kind of pulled into all, the, all those different roles. And I think it's because I was a writer and nobody hires 
writers. There's no, there's no job description for writer at a company, but, uh, and I used to hide this. I used to, you know, kind of never tell anybody that I worked for that I had any kind of creativity um, because uh, it seemed frivolous. And one time I, I lost a, a, a job because the, the woman learned I was an actor in college and she was afraid I would like quit. Oh, wow. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to tell anyone that I'm, that I'm creative, but inevitably, you know, somebody would learn that, that I could write. Uh, and I think I started in, in accounting and they were like, well, we got these prospectus uh, that we're, that we're going to write, you know, can you write those for us? I was like, sure. So I, I kind of put myself through school working in it and writing. And, and of course, once, because I kind of grew up with technology. Um, I had a, you know, my first computer was an Apple II. I had it at 16. So I kind of understood some basic programming. And, you know, as the industry expanded, I was just like that kid you threw at the problem. I'd figure it out. And then because I could figure it out and I had the ability to write, well, then I would just write some training manuals and guides and things like that. And, um, and eventually I became a trainer or I would work in tech support. And then over time with my with both the writing background and the theater background in college, I studied playwriting and screenwriting as an undergrad mm -hmm. and fiction. And uh, I, I ended up switching halfway through and did an interdisciplinary degree at UNLV in Las Vegas. I basically took the graduate novel writing and screenwriting <laughs> and playwriting programs um, and just said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to learn how to write all different kinds of things and had some really good mentors there. That's really cool. It's also kind of reminiscent of at least one person that I, I know through writing, and that's Michael Dylan Welch, who hosts something called Nahai Rimo, which is National Haiku Writing Month, and that's in February. Oh. He started that. It's been going on for well over a decade now. In fact, we participate in our own contest here throughout the state with that, but he picked February because it was the shortest month of the year and haiku <laughs> being, you know, the shortest form of poetry. Sure. Um, he's a technical writer by trade. I think he got his start in technical writing with those like DOS for Dummies books. Mm -hmm. And then your story is also somewhat reminiscent of the author Ted Chang, who wrote Arrival. He oh, yeah. has a, yeah. an IT background and is a technical writer himself. And so I'm always fascinated how those two worlds collide. Often we sort of think, well, technical people are sort of one side of the brain and creative people are the other side of the brain. But you bring it together. And in NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month, which is why we wanted to talk to you, You've got to hit 50,000 words in a month. How do you approach nano? Is it anything like your technical writing? No, it's, it, I had to unlearn a lot of stuff in order to go back to creative writing. I started writing my first novel at 11 years old. Um, you know, I was an avid reader. Wow. I, I, I was interested in writing. I sat down, I wrote about 20 pages of, you know, handwritten notebook and just became completely overwhelmed uh, by the scope of it, you know, I was trying to be a just pure, they call them pansters these days. Right. So right, I was right. just going to sit down and start at the beginning and write all the way to the end and, and became overwhelmed. So that's when I switched to poetry because I could write something in a day and I would often be writing in the back of the classroom or at the front of the classroom, you know, putting stories together and things like that. So short stories and, and that sort of thing kind of kept me going. Um, but once I got into the 
you know, the IT world and technical writing in, in, in general, what I had to do is become a very good first draft writer. Right, so right. I, I have to have the editor on all the time. And so I would sit there with my you know, fingers on the keyboard and, and be constantly revising. And, and, you know, I had that inner style guide going all the time. All right, right. shorten that down. So in order to achieve everything in the time provided, I just had to make a good first time and go with it. But when I had to get creative again, and, you know, I've, I've tried on and off, I've, I've written, let's see, starting in college, I wrote, I think three or four full length plays. I had a partner and he and I wrote, I think six different screenplays, one of which got option. But when I went to grad school, we had our first child and sort of I decided to raise two adults instead of <laughs> pursue a, you know, a, a writing career with any kind of sure. urgency. So when I, when I needed to get back into it, I had to learn how to turn off that inner editor and just get pure creative. Yeah. It's not easy to do. I find the same is true for me in news writing. And one of the things that I did love about creative writing when I was doing it quite a bit, not so much anymore, was similar process, you know, turning off that editor. It was Hemingway who said something like, write drunk, edit sober. It wasn't quite like that. Um, right. But the idea is that you just try not to censor yourself and just get it out on the page if you're writing by hand, which I still like to do. This particular year in NaNoWriMo, what's uh, the genre briefly of what you're writing? And, and maybe tell me a little bit about the plot. One of the things that I learned in, in screenwriting, I studied um, under Stephen Geller at ASU, um, and he said, under no circumstances, tell anybody about what you're writing because it takes away the urgency. <laughs> right. And once you've told the story, you've scratched that itch, so to speak, and now it's, you know, now it's out there. Why tell any, anybody again, you know, on page? So I've been careful about it, but um, it's a sci-fi story, but Growing up, I was more attracted to Ray Bradbury, and um, I'm more interested in how the science um, affects the people. Right? Absolutely. So what's the emotional reaction in confronting something that's either you know, out of this world literally or metaphysical in, you know, in the way we understand it? So the central what if of this story is it's a, it's a multiverse um, story. So what if a multiverse exists? What if there are people like you in one of these other multiverses? And what if they can swap with you? Oh, wow. That sounds fascinating. At, and, but at a very early age, right? So near birth. So in a way, it's like a ghost story in that, you know, um, my protagonist, who is a, is a young girl at the beginning, finds that her world is completely shifted out. So she doesn't have the adult's ability to sort of discern between one reality and the next. And so over time, she sort of develops a response to this other person who takes over her life and, and uh, the sacrifices she makes and how she responds to it. And then in sort of this hero's journey that she goes through, she has to learn not only what had happened to her, but how to master it, how to turn it to her benefit and conquer it. Do I have this correct that it's actually set in present day Phoenix? It is. Okay. It, I, I, one of the things that um, kind of was drilled into my head, you know, about science fiction by my mentors who hated science fiction <laughs> <laughs> um, was that uh, 
the, the worst thing about science fiction is the exposition. And, and I yes. kind of feel this is true. And I have no interest in spending a whole lot of time explaining technology. I mean, that's kind of what I do for a living anyway. Sure. So um, it didn't make sense to, to go there. And I just felt like it, it was better if it was rooted in a very present day kind of world. I wanted it to be here. I liked Phoenix. I think it's, it's, it's an interesting place. It has a lot of history. It has a lot of layers, literally, to the city. So I felt like it was a fascinating place. And, you know, it's where, my, where I raised my daughters. And uh, I have two adult daughters now, and I'm kind of writing this in a way for them. When they were growing up, I wrote them children's stories. They knew me as a writer and a oh, creative. Wow. So they've always kind of been in my corner. The thing that I think a lot of people miss these days, when the term sci-fi is thrown out, let's just take the Star Wars trilogy uh, or others, to me, that's science fantasy. And there's a, an important distinction between the two, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the distinctions that I use is that in science fantasy, there's some kind of fantastic element, like the Force, for instance, that intercedes into characters' lives that they use, you know, a lightsaber, that kind of thing. Although I guess in some ways you could kind of say that a lightsaber is a piece of technology, but not in the way that technology is used often in sci-fi, science fiction. Of course, there's this concept of the deus ex machina, the god and the machine in science fiction. Does that make any sense to you, what I'm describing? I was 11 when Star Wars came out. You know, my the novel I attempted to write was something of a Star Trek kind of uh, story, I remember. So, and, you know, my grandmother loved science fiction, so I was kind of steeped in it. I got all of these paperback books uh, from my uncles, Asimov and Heinlein and, and Bradbury and so, and Old Galaxy and the Standing Fiction magazines. And, you know, I would just go through them endlessly. So I, I was always steeped in that language. But I'm attracted to the rational element of, of, of science fiction, right? right, I, right. I, I don't want to. I don't want to break physics, and that's I think where that distinction you're making is. It's like okay, fantasy doesn't have to comply with physics. It, it makes up something magical that sort of forces it to happen. I actually spun a number of different ways because I felt like, and when you're dealing with a multiverse, fantasy, you know, is the closet that you walk through <laughs> to go into the other universe, sure. right? But I couldn't have that. So I needed some kind of physics, which ultimately is a cheat. I don't know that multiverses work this way. And frankly, nobody knows if multiverses of really course. exist. But, <laughs> right. but uh, you know, when you were talking about Star Trek, that made me think as well in Roddenberry's own writing, not wanting to deal so much in that technology. When Roddenberry was writing Star Trek, oftentimes in the scripts, there would just be a little direction in there because, of course, they hadn't built a prop or anything like that yet. I mean, a tricorder you know, is, is something that's important right, to the Star right. Trek universe, but it didn't exist, obviously. But he just had to kind of put a little description in there and leave it up to the art department. Sure. Was it Arthur C. Clarke who said that you know, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? So right. we have that room to go there, you know, as creative writers. Kevin, I want to thank you so much. Uh, your life story is fascinating. And I'm sure that if readers get a chance to actually read this book, it will be fascinating as well. Kevin, thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about your NaNoWriMo project. You're welcome. Thank you. You can find out more about Kevin Troy Darling on our website at Word dot kjzz.org. 
Portions of Word have been nominated for an Edward R. Murrow Award. We'll be back soon with our season ender. In the meantime, I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks so much for supporting public radio and the literary arts in Arizona and the region. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.